My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading comes from the 62nd chapter of Isaiah. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give, and you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God." You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel, according to St. John, the second chapter. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. In this season, starting with Epiphany and then these Sundays which follow, we're considering Jesus' revelation to the world, how he was revealed. But we could frame it from the other side, how the world realized who Jesus is. Epiphany is another word for realization. So we started with the wise men. Uh, They were the first Gentiles to learn about him. And as a very young man, we then found him teaching in the temple in Jerusalem, very impressively for his age. Then last week, we had his baptism, the first big public event in which many people saw God active in him. And today, we get more localized, private, perhaps practical, as he turns water into wine. And that's curious, isn't it, that 
Water into wine is a common phrase readily associated with Jesus as to summarize his divinity. We use it to compare how impressive or not other actions might be human actions. It's not like he turned water into wine. In in the same manner, you might hear people say, well, I'm not perfect. If I were, I could walk on water. That's what separates Jesus from us. Outside of church itself, these allusions to certain miracles may well be the most common way that our culture mentions Jesus' divinity. They are the sort of miracle that don't involve raising people from the dead or exercising demons or healing ailments, you know, the sort that help people. They're just sort of impressive for being impressive. So again, a curiosity. Has Jesus' divinity been revealed to the world in just that he can do impressive things? Well, that doesn't sound quite right. We know better than that. We know Jesus is embracing metaphor. He's leaning on, employing ancient symbols to teach people, particularly to teach them about himself. It's not just a show of power. It's a sign. But as a side note, the Gospel of John does not call turning water into wine a miracle. John never uses the word miracle. Instead, he calls it a sign. Turning water into wine is a sign. Therefore, it points to something else. And to get to what this sign points to, we're going to stop and consider a totally different story. It's a story you've heard me talk about many times over the years, but it's big enough and important enough that it bears bringing up every now and again. In fact, while Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, and really the whole church year, are centered around the story of Jesus, we tell this other story each year in these three seasons, the Babylonian exile. Just as an example of how important it is, we tell it each year. So the most referenced persons and events in the Old Testament, that's like King David and his reign and Moses and the Exodus. Uh, There's another major event there in history just before the Babylonian exile, which was the Assyrian conquest when the northern kingdom, named Israel, was destroyed. So depending on how you reckon it, those are about the four most important particular events in the Old Testament. However, when it comes to scriptures which we read in order to know about all four of those events and others, many of those scriptures as we have them today were compiled and or finalized and on their way to being canonized, officially considered scripture, around and during the Babylonian exile. Hence, despite maybe never once coming up in Sunday school, it's a contender for the most impactful event before Christ on our entire tradition. Furthermore, this is the time period where we find most of the prophetic work and, by extension, most of the prophetic work which points to Jesus and informs our understanding of him. So, now for the historical background. At the start of the 6th century BC, Babylon conquered Jerusalem and started moving some of the people into the Babylonian territories. They purposefully took people in leadership positions, those who could organize people, because those are the sort who could organize rebellions. And often those people happened to be priests or scribes who were literate and familiar with the traditions. Those people, separated from the temple and their fellow countrymen and separated from their traditions, decided to put pen to paper to make sure the Jewish faith survived the exile, even if they themselves did not. Hence, we have some of the scriptures as we have them today. And it's no coincidence that they therefore included many writings or sermons of the prophets who were active in and around that time. 
So you have the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. A few are about the Assyrian conquest of Israel that we just mentioned, but all the rest and all the major prophets are about the Babylonian exile. Those prophets address questions like, how did it come about? Who is to blame? Where is God in all this? And when and how will it end? Will we go home? And will things go back to the way they were if we do? I mean, these were huge questions pressing in on the people. So imagine yourself in that kind of situation, ripped out of your homeland, the way you had practiced your cultural, religious, your spiritual identity, no longer available to you, however you practiced it. That includes church, of course, but so much more. No ball drop on New Year's Eve. No fireworks the 4th of July. No Super Bowl party. That's not meant to make the exile sound trite, but to call your attention to the fact that we have a lot of cultural markers that bind us together. And the exile means no access to those markers. And then, of course, besides all that, no access to most of your friends, family, neighbors, and so on. Instead, now the people around you don't speak the same language as you. They don't share your values or your customs. Needless to say, no matter where you ended up, wherever this exile was to, it would be awful. It would totally upend every aspect of your life, and doubtless you would yearn to get back to the old ways. That's not the whole story for each of the exiles, though, those people in exile. Some of them were born there and grew up missing a life they never had, having heard the stories. In fact, most of those exiled would die in Babylon, and most of those who returned home were born in exile. They knew their family had homes, herds, land, and so on, but when they returned, someone else was living there. So it's just hardship, wall-to-wall, for lifetimes, entire generations. Now, this description is just the broad strokes, tip of the iceberg version, but that's enough to see why it was such a pivotal event and the sort worth considering, prophesying, and writing about, and in our day, telling the story each year. The despair, uh, despair of such an event like that, the sort of despair it could bring about, becomes a stand-in for all manner of hardship humans face. Sometimes it's a loss, illness, accident, disaster, you name it. But it comes along and it upends your life in every facet. And it's unclear if that upending is forever or just for a time. Now, there's one major prophet who covers the whole story. So that's the prophet we lean on to tell the story at this time of year, from Advent through Christmas and into Epiphany, Isaiah. And Isaiah as a book can be pretty neatly divided into three sections. The first is before the exile, the second is during the exile, and the third is on the way home but not so neatly as the way we've divided those three sections across these three seasons. It would have been nice if they fit, but not quite. The first, uh, to start, first and second Isaiah are both used in Advent and in Christmas. In Advent, the people know something's afoot and foul, change will come soon, and the people's waywardness, their sinfulness and selfishness, will only make it worse. Their inability to get right with God is having a negative impact on themselves, their neighbors, their world. And God's going to make it right one way or another, even if it hurts. In exile, they long for God's presence and anticipate the next time God will act in a big way. The prophet comforts the people with words of promise and hope that there will be help soon, and that help will come in the form of one who will suffer, someone who's born of a virgin, whose presence, his very presence, indicates God is with them. 
So all of that is scattered around Advent and Christmas, but then Epiphany roughly lines up with third Isaiah and the return home. At that point, help has arrived. God is on the scene. Their days of torment are over. Not that there will never be hardship or suffering again, but at least that big weight on their back, that thing that was covering their whole lives, that weight has been lifted. So they can see the great thing God has done and see that God is continuing to work. So, at first blush, there's a little bit of a tension between these two stories that we tell at the, first, uh, at the same time during the first few months of the church year. Jesus' story is just beginning now while Isaiah's is drawing to a close. But that isn't quite right. Because third Isaiah, and Isaiah as a whole really, isn't just about rejoicing about returning home. It's also about what to do with that news. Where will these people live now, for example? And how can they live holy lives when everything's changed? And it's about yet another moment in history in which God will act. See, the return is used in metaphoric parallel, pointing forward in time, pointing to the end times. At some point, all the world will be drawn to Jerusalem, as the exiles were on their return home, and all God's people will join God at the heavenly banquet, living forever on into eternity in the abundance of good things, all the best things life had to offer. You can see how these two stories get told in parallel and intertwined then through these three seasons. We've got people who live in hardship, in part because of their own sin, and the hardship has devastated generations. Then a child is born to reveal God's presence, and God sends a Messiah to free them from that bondage, so they are free to live fully into their relationship with God. Finally, we see this good news isn't just about something that happened in the bygone past, or even just about how we live with God today, but it's also about our future. Someday everyone who wants it will enjoy coming back into God's presence through Jerusalem. So, Back to the start then. We're not in Jerusalem, but we're nearby. The wedding at Cana of Galilee. So, as we heard, they've run out of wine. And Jesus is there with a few disciples and his mother. And his mother knows Jesus can do something about this lack of wine. We don't know how she knows that, but she does. He puts up a bit of a fight. It's not his time yet, as in this will mean some people will know that he can work such signs before they ought to know. But nevertheless, he listens to his mother. The workers and disciples now know what Mary knew at the start, at least some of it. Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. But again, this isn't just a neat magic trick. It's not just impressive for the sake of being impressive. Jesus works within the symbolism of his Jewish tradition. Those Jewish people living in exile, when given a word of hope that they'd return home, that home, again, was frequently envisioned as a banquet, overflowing, explicitly overflowing with good food and the abundance of well-aged wine. Not just any wine, the best wine. The same thing the steward says to the bridegroom. This is no ordinary wine, it's the best. In other words, Jesus embodied that promise. On the one hand, he is its fulfillment. He is drawing people to God through the traditions of Jerusalem. And during his ministry, he provides an abundance of food and wine. But on the other hand, he points to the same future Isaiah pointed to. This is what God's physical presence means. It's what it looks like, 
Someday we will all live in God's physical presence forever and ever and enjoy that same sort of abundance. So whatever the exile is in our lives, the hardship, the upending, Jesus is the affirmation of all God's promises that came before and the assurance of all God's promises made in and through him for our future. His revelation to the world was about far more than physical wine. It was about who we are and who God is and what our future together looks like. We will all someday be made whole and the world will someday be set right. That's what Jesus revealed to the world and the sign that was turning water into wine. As practical as that sounds, as neat as it would be to be able to do that, it was a sign pointing us to that future. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.